I like weed and have used it since I was a teenager. In my 20s, I smoked as travel allowed. When my career kicked in a bit more, I'd do my best to stay straight during the week, but generally found myself hammered from 4.01 p.m. on Friday until 8.59 on Sunday. By my 30s, I came to understand that marijuana was a tool of sorts and should be used as such. To explain what I mean, let's defer to an expert to explore exactly how weed works. Marijuana is a mind-altering substance that produces its effects by changing the rate of what is already going on in the brain. THC substitutes for your own natural endocannabinoids and mimics their effects. It activates the same chemical processes that the brain already employs to modulate your thoughts. These specific neurotransmitters help us sort the relentless stream of inputs and flag the ones that should stand out from the torrent of neural activity coding stray urges and experience. By flooding the entire brain, as opposed to select synapses, marijuana can make everything, including the most boring activities, take on a sparkling transcendence. In short, it's amazing. After all that practice in my 30s, I now consider myself to be a high-functioning stoner. More specifically, I use cannabis in a controlled situation to bring out thoughts and ideas that would not normally occur to me. I then take prolific notes, which is my way of stepping out of the flood and concentrating on a single concept at a time. Try that sometime. Pick up a pen and write a sentence down while thinking of something else. You cannot do it. So, if you ever see me somewhere furiously scribbling down gibberish on a restaurant napkin, this is what I'm doing. I'm taking a previously unseen string and pulling it with my full attention. It's a life hack of sorts, because cannabinoid activity, by highlighting everything, conveys nothing. You have to focus, or that meaningful idea will be washed away. The next morning, I gather up my notes, and 99% of them are admittedly incomprehensible. But now I have that 1% that I didn't have before. And sometimes I find gems there. I've come up with some of my best ideas while stoned, as long as I reassessed and edited them later while I was straight. With that introduction, let's start this story off at PJ Clark's, when it was run by a bowtie-wearing bartender named Doug. He was definitely a Doug, the sort of person who referred to himself in the third person all the time. We used to troll the shit out of Doug. Tonight we plan to outdo ourselves by eating dye tablets and drinking until one of us threw up on his bar. The fluorescent vomit would make for a spectacle the likes that guests wouldn't have seen since their college days. Now, one of our friends was not in what you'd consider optimal aerobic condition, and I had money on him to puke first. But just in case, I intended to get really, really stoned, because amongst all its other wonders, marijuana also suppresses nausea. No way I was going to be the one who vomits all over the show. Don't be that person. Handle your shit. Always wait until you get home to puke. Anyway, it's early evening, we've eaten our fluorescent dye packets and are just beginning to crack into shots of gin when my Blackberry curve rings. For a moment, I look at it in puzzlement. I'd actually forgotten those things could be used as phones as well. I just used it for email and to defend the office brick breaker championship. But here it is, chirping away at me. Eventually, I pick it up, to snorts of derision, and the training desk assistant, Rudy, is yelling in an absolute panic. Apparently, there's yet another crisis in the third world, no overnight traders for whatever reason, and the poor guy had called everyone down the emergency list until he arrived at my name. Although I am a senior trader at the firm, there's a reason Rudy called me last. Nowadays, a buy-side trader has a multitude of roles. Relationship management, operations, analyst, IR support, and yes, they also occasionally trade. But back then, all you did was execute. 
We were so busy that desks had to be separated by product type, and I was just a stock guy. By contrast, the overnight desk mostly traded foreign exchange, which was open 24 hours. Longer story made shorter and dumber, I'm called into the office to deal with yet another emerging market crisis. All EM crises are the same. Western investors see locals making money exploiting their own populace, try to get in on the grift. Too much money floods in until the scams get so blatant, no one can ignore them anymore. The press gets upset. Everyone tries to pull their money at the same time. Big crowds make for small exits. Currencies collapse. Still stoned off my tits, I stumble into the office. The assistant shares his Bloomberg screen with me, and sure enough, it's a sea of red. But a closer inspection, the currencies, while red, are all rising. What on earth does that mean? It turns out, when there's a foreign exchange crisis and everything goes to hell, the currencies actually go up on your screens. The trading assistant explained to me this is because they are quoted U.S. dollar first. So if the yen, for instance, was priced at 100 to 1 and loses 10% of value, it is now 110 to 1. That is, it takes more yen to buy one U.S. dollar. I'm told there's an exception to this rule. The pound, euro, kiwi, and Aussie are quoted indirectly, local currency first. So when they go up, they're actually getting stronger. I laugh at this. Tell my assistant who is from India that going forward, we'll call those currencies the GDWF or good decent white folk basket, and he should remind me they trade in a proper sort of manner before we put any orders in. That normally crack him up, but he doesn't even smile, telling me I need to concentrate. There's a few more things I need to know about trading foreign exchange. Firstly, he tells me the prices reflected on the screens aren't actually trades, but quotes. You don't see the trades, they don't print anywhere. Secondly, in order to put up any sort of significant volume, you need to call up a bank and they'll buy or sell you the currency in a block out of their risk book. I think this is stupid and have some suggestions on how the largest, most liquid and sophisticated market in the world can be more efficient, but my assistant tells me to shut up and listen for another minute. It turns out our preferred way to get exposure to emerging market foreign exchange is through options, specifically puts. I'm like, that's fine, I know what that is. If you buy a put, it means you want the product to go down. Up, the assistant reminds me. When EMFX goes down, it actually goes up. Got it, I say. One last thing, he says, we'll probably want to sell the put. And then the phone rings. For the second time of the night, I stare at a telephone in confusion. I'm so stoned and all this foreign exchange stuff was so complicated, I had forgotten I was brought in to actually trade. I laugh a little to myself and the assistant looks at me in concern. The person calling is the son of a billionaire, but the only one I've ever met who knows how much a movie costs and takes the subway to and from work. He asks about puts in the Turkish lira. I point out that they're going down, which is actually up for us, but means the currency is going up, which is actually down, because that FX isn't quoted normally like the good, decent white folk basket. He says, like what? I snort at that. But then I notice something. The symbol for the Turkish lira is T-R-Y-U-S-D. Try USD. Try the U.S. dollar. That's hilarious. <laughs> what a dumb currency. Stupid Turks. I laugh, and there's silence on the other end of the phone. Then he says he'll call me back. I'm making fun of other places that aren't nearly as good as America, and my assistant has his head in his hands when the billionaire calls me back. Says... Let's buy turkey. Wait, no, let's sell turkey. Wait on that. Let's not buy or sell turkey. <laughs>